we know that ultimately there's a, a harvest being reaped in Indonesia right now, and so we're just happy to be able to be a part of that, uh, to have been able to be a part of that for the past couple years, and hopefully more so down the road. Uh, we don't really know what God's plans for us are uh, with David's situation, um, but uh, our hope is to return and to continue to be a part of what God's doing in Indonesia. So that's, that's us. World Venture, when we were going, said to us, really, your first term, your first term is usually about four years. For your first term, we, um, we, your goal is to survive. If you make it through and want to go back, we consider that a successful first term. And here we are, two and a half years later, <laughs> back in the U.S., but we were constantly having to remind ourselves that that was our agency's primary goal for us because it's as you do learn language and do build relationships, it's so easy to want to just dive right in and do everything and be a part of everything. And so we did a lot. And uh, by the time uh, we were coming back, we realized that we were probably doing too much. So that's something to pray for us about as we consider our options with David. It's not only uh, what should we do about David, but also what should we do to make sure that uh, we are not too heavily involved with ministry things so that we have the capacity to both take care of our family and also do the ministry well. Um, but that's, that's a need that we've realized as we've uh, thought through more of, of what we were doing and what, what that was like for us and our family. Uh, for example, teaching in a classroom and then regularly preaching in churches on Sundays and then also taking doctoral classes might be a little too much for me right now. So just uh, keep us in prayer in, in that way as well. Um, Nate asked me to share a bit about what I learned over the last several years. Um, and so I thought back on that, and this sermon is not maybe what you would expect to hear on a missions Sunday, um, but it's very uh, um, close to my heart. It's, it's something that God continues to work on in my heart, even today. Um, I was asked to preach two weeks before Easter Sunday and, and, and decided to preach on this passage this year, and I've um, continued to come back to it several times throughout the year because uh, God is still working to change my heart in alignment with this sermon. So um, that's why I, I chose it for today, um, but it doesn't really have so much of a go theme as it does a... Um, uh, how are you responding to what God is doing in your life? How is God stretching your faith? Um, and what is God calling you to do next that you might not be ready to do? Um, so uh, we'll dive into that here. And uh, before we do, I'd like to open in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we thank you so much for who you are, for your majesty, for your glory, for your awesome power, for your love, for your desire to um, use us in amazing ways that we can't even fathom. We just thank you so much for your word that 
tells us these things and so much more. We pray that you would continue to open our minds and hearts to it, particularly this morning as we uh, study this passage in John, that you would uh, use it to, to speak to us where we are and to move us beyond, um, beyond where we are, to move us to a place where we can trust you more fully with every aspect of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 11, uh, we're going to start in verse 1 and go as far as I can make it before it's time for lunch. So we'll see if we make it all the way to, uh, I have 44 on there, we'll see. (laughs) But I'll just read as each point as we go, we'll read the passage. Instead of reading the whole thing to begin with, we'll read it in bits just so that we can make it along. So we'll start with 1 through 16. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, and whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, The Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, If he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, but for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. So the first point in this passage is that those who are loved by God can still suffer. I was thinking about this this week and about how easy it is when there's difficult situations in life to ask, where was God? Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to us? Why did this happen to my friends who I know love God and serve him? I think about the wildfires up in Santa Rosa. There are people who love God whose houses have been completely destroyed, along with people who don't know God, who may even curse God. Both those who love God and those who curse God have faced this tragedy together. Same thing with the hurricanes. Same thing with, um, I think there was an earthquake in India not too long ago that killed lots and lots of people. 
these things happen, and we wonder, why, why do the people who love and serve God suffer in these ways? When we see friends and family members who, who love God and devote their lives to him get sick, get cancer, die early young deaths, we say, why did this happen? Where was God? Why did God let this happen? And I think part of it is that we expect that uh, part of serving and loving God and following him uh, means that he's going to take special care of us and, and exempt us from hardship and difficulties. But we see in this passage that those who are loved by God are not exempt from that kind of suffering. This story opens with an explanation of who Lazarus and his sisters were. This family is loved by Jesus. They, are, they knew this, and so when they convey the message about Lazarus' condition to Jesus, they don't even use his name. They just say, the one whom you love is sick. Because they know that Jesus will know who that is. This is an amazing way of expressing that relationship between Lazarus and Jesus. Uh, The only other person who is described as the one who is loved by Jesus in all of the Gospels is John. Um, It's not a title that gets, or a description that gets just thrown around loosely. Um, So this describes a very close, close friend personal friend of Jesus. And and then John explains that Jesus also loved Mary and Martha. This This is a family that was very, very dear to Jesus. And yet, Lazarus dies. Jesus doesn't go and heal him from this illness. Jesus expects Lazarus to die. He thinks that it's better for Lazarus to die than for Jesus to heal him. I mean, just think about that for a second. This is one of his closest friends, and Jesus tells his disciples that it is better that he doesn't go there and heal him so that he dies. That's just hard to comprehend. Um, But it's because Jesus knows what's best, not only for Lazarus, but for his sisters, for Jesus' disciples, for the others who will be there to witness what will happen when Jesus does go. And it's just, it's that eternal perspective, that perspective of, um, of omniscience, of all knowledge that Jesus has, that God has, that helps us understand the why of what happens in Lazarus's Situation. It doesn't necessarily help us understand better what's going on with the fires in Santa Rosa, but it helps us understand this situation in such a way that we can then be confident as we trust God in the hardships that we face in our own lives. <clears throat> Jesus says that he is going to stay where he is because he loves Lazarus. And that's important because he knows that this is what is best for Lazarus and his family. Um, 
When I was in college, my parents told me that they wanted me to go to college, but they would not help me pay for college. And I know that there's different opinions about how to, how to do that among each family. But um, my parents thought it was best if I learned to work to support myself as I studied. And so they said, no, you need to get a job and, and work and pay for your, your tuition. Um, and then there were times along the way where they did end up helping me when, when there were extenuating circumstances. So they weren't just saying, we're cutting you off. But they said, you, you need to learn to be responsible. Um, and, and for me, that was a little frustrating because I had lots of friends who had parents who said, no, no, we'll, we'll cover your school bill and you just focus on studying. And, um, and I didn't have that luxury. But over time, I've come to learn that that's what was best for me. I needed to learn that sense of responsibility. I gained a lot of experiences through the different jobs that I did while I was in school. There were, there were a lot of benefits to that for me. Um, and so I can look back now and say, honestly, that that's what was best for me and that my parents were lovingly helping to guide me along that path. Now, in the moment, it seemed like they were just being mean. But, but they weren't. They were doing what was best for me. Throughout this entire story, we also see that Jesus is clearly controlling the situation. We can um, see a few reasons and goals that Jesus has for uh, waiting until Lazarus dies to go and visit his family. In verse 4, he says that Lazarus' sickness is for the glory of God. And that by the sickness, the Son of God will be glorified. In verse 15, Jesus gives thanks that he wasn't present when Lazarus died and explains that it was better for his disciples that way. So we see that Jesus knows what timing is best for his arrival, that is, after Lazarus is already dead. There's also a conversation uh, between Jesus Jesus and his disciples Uh, about the idea of returning to Judea. And the context of this is that um, in chapter 10, the Jewish leaders tried to kill him there. And so Jesus' disciples warn him in an effort to guard his safety. He responds with an illustration about walking during the day and walking at night. Basically, he's saying that um, he won't be killed before the right time. And until then, he's just going to continue to minister to others and, and do what he was sent here to do. So he is confident to go back because he knows that it's not yet time for him to die and that he won't die before the right time. Um, so in these verses, verses 1 through 16, uh, there's basically two themes. One is that Lazarus and his family are loved by Jesus And two, that Jesus is in control of the situation. Um, So we see that those who are loved by God can still suffer. In the next section, we're going to see that God is never late. Let's start reading in verse 17. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. 
And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And we'll stop there for right now. We're going to look at this section and see that God is never late. Um, Sometimes we focus too much on one thing and cannot see anything else much less that the solution to the problem that we're focusing on is already there, right in front of us. A while ago, somewhat recently, uh, I saw a situation like this play itself out with my wife and one of her sisters. Um, They had come home from somewhere else and had planned to watch a movie. But when they arrived at our house, they noticed that the power was out. Uh, Like our whole neighborhood the power was out. So they started making plans. Okay, we'll go somewhere else and do this other thing. And they talked about the logistics of that. And as they were talking, the power came back on. The lights came on, the fans turned on, the refrigerator compressor turned on. There were sights, sounds, feelings around them to indicate that their problem had been solved. But they were still talking about where they should go and what they should do and how to get there and all the logistics. And after a bit, I was just laughing because I thought it was funny that they were still discussing this. And so I interrupted them and said, but you don't need to, look, it's back on. And that opened their eyes. They were able to see, oh yeah, there are lights on. Oh yeah, the fans are running. Because they were so focused on solving the problem that they needed an interruption to be able to see that the solution was already there, that it had already solved itself. And that's kind of what happens with Mary and Martha. They're so focused on the problem of their brother's illness and Jesus not coming before he died that they didn't really notice 
that the solution had already presented itself when Jesus did come, that he was there to raise their brother from the dead. In these verses, there's this focus on Jesus' choice of timing. Everybody, Mary, Martha, the Jews, they all say that Jesus is capable of healing people with illnesses like Lazarus's. Nobody questions his abilities in that, in that manner. It's amazing because in so many other places, people are, are, are amazed when Jesus heals somebody. But in this case, Jesus doesn't heal somebody and they all say, couldn't he have healed this person? They're almost accusatory that it's Jesus' fault that Lazarus has died because he didn't come and heal him from this sickness. It's amazing because they all recognize his power in that situation. Three times it's said that it's, it's said that, is, that if he was there, Lazarus would not have died. And this is consistent with what Jesus tells his disciples before he goes. That he's glad that he wasn't there to heal him because it's better for him to go later. In the entire book of John, and really in the Gospels, there's not one story of someone dying in Jesus' presence. There's this concept that's communicated that where he is, there is life. You're not going to find people dying in front of Jesus. And we'll focus on that a bit more later. But the important aspect right now is that they all agreed that he's capable of performing this miracle for Lazarus before he died. Not so much afterwards. Nobody's there saying, so if he could have done that, then maybe he can raise him back up. They're all just, they're limited in their expectations of what Jesus can do. Um, When he arrives, Lazarus has already been dead for four days, it says. Jesus only waited for two days where he had been. So there's this also, there's, John sort of communicates indirectly that Jesus wouldn't have arrived before Lazarus died even if he'd gone right away. Even if he'd gone as soon as he got the message, Lazarus would have already been dead for two days. But we also know from other stories that Jesus didn't have to go in order to heal Lazarus. He could have just healed him when he heard the news. Um, But... Then again, if you do the math, that means the messenger probably got to Jesus after Lazarus was already dead. So there's this this idea that Jesus waited in order to to communicate this idea to his disciples, to Mary and Martha, that Jesus was not attempting to go in time to heal Lazarus. He was intentional about waiting until Lazarus was already dead. Um, and again, there's this sense of Jesus being in control of the whole situation. Martha's conversation with Jesus focuses on the timing, but quickly changes from his arrival time to the timing of the resurrection. Martha already knows Jesus well enough and believes that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And she, just like most Jews at that time, believe that, the, that at the end of days, God's people will be resurrected. But Martha had not yet made that connection between those two beliefs. She hadn't realized that he who will raise all believers on the final day can also raise her brother today. She thinks, along with 
Mary and the other Jews there that Jesus is too late. So Jesus tries to teach Martha by focusing on who he is. He is the resurrection and the life. Lazarus, a man who believes in Jesus, even though he is dead, will not stay dead forever. Martha responds that she believes, but doesn't yet understand Jesus' intention to raise Lazarus from the grave. So often we focus exclusively on our problem and cannot see the solution offered to us by God. We ask why God is not present in this situation, but it would be better to ask how he is still resolving it. What is God doing right now to make this better? What will God do in the future to fix this problem? We too often limit God in our expectation of how he works. Instead, we should continue to seek and hope for a miracle from him. And oftentimes, that miracle is right in front of us. And we're just too focused on our problems to see it. So we see that um, those who are loved by God can still suffer. God is never late. And finally, we'll see Jesus reveals his power over the grave. It says, then Jesus, in verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I, know, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hand and feet, hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Yeah. So Jesus reveals his power over the grave. In the second section, we already saw that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the Son of God. Also in those verses is a bit about Jesus' emotions, just like the first part of this section. In verses 33 and 38, it says that Jesus was deeply moved. And in verse 35, it says that he wept. These verses and phrases are important for us because there's only a little bit written about Jesus' emotions. They help us understand and know him better as a person and also help us understand better how God interacts with situations like this. Unfortunately, a lot of modern translations use pretty vague wording here to describe Jesus' emotions. The same Greek word is used in both 33 and 38 where it says he was deeply moved. And it's a very strong word related to anger or frustration. So a lot of times we read this in English and think, oh, he was extremely sorrowful. He was really sad. And then we connect that with him weeping. But in Greek, the the terms can't really mean that. They're not used for sadness. They're used for anger. It's the same word that's used to describe his emotions when he overturns the the tables in the temple of the the merchants there. Um, He's 
angry. He's, he's moved to deep frustration and anger as, as he's working through this situation. And that's a little bit confusing because you would expect him to be sad that his friend is dead, except that he knows that he's about to raise him from the dead. And so it seems like his frustrations it more pointed towards those who don't yet have faith and believe that he's capable of doing this. That he's also, in the midst of all this, he's facing his ultimate enemy, which is death, which he's going to face more directly very soon after this event. So there's a lot going on here beyond just his friend has died. There's also his other friends don't really understand who he is, even though he's so close to them. And they're so close to knowing the truth. And, and also that, that face-off with death. So there's, there's a lot mixed in in this situation that um, Jesus is going through. And so he, he vacillates between this anger and frustration and then sadness at even seeing what his friends Mary and Martha are going through. As they, they, he sees the consequences of sin and death in their lives. So, um, Jesus, he's, he's angry, he's frustrated, but then he also weeps as he approaches the grave. When he arrives, he wants somebody to open it. Martha doesn't agree with this because she thinks, she's still thinking that, that there's nothing that can be done. Lazarus is dead. He's going to stay dead. So if you open that tomb, it's just going to smell. Because he's been dead for a while. And Jesus, instead of saying directly, I'm going to raise him to life again, he says, didn't I tell you that you're going to see the glory of God? And we don't see her response, but it's implied that she must have said, okay, go ahead, do whatever you want to do. Or something like, you know, she agreed to let the stone be moved. Or the people who were told to move it thought, well, that's a good enough answer. We'll just go ahead and move it. But whatever happens there, the the, the tomb gets opened. And then Jesus prays the strangest prayer because he doesn't ask God for anything. He doesn't say anything about Lazarus in the prayer. He just thanks God for hearing him. And says, oh, and by the way, I'm, I'm just praying this for everybody else here so that they'll know that you hear me and that you sent me. This is a very odd prayer. But it points to the focus of why is Jesus doing this? Why did Lazarus die? Why didn't Jesus heal him? And it's all because there's this um, goal of using this situation to reveal who Jesus is to the people who are there to help them see that he has power even over death. Because these are the people who are going to have to go through seeing their best friend, their savior, die. And they're going to have to wait for three days while he's in the grave without knowing what's going to happen. Even though he keeps trying to tell them what's going to happen, they don't really get it. And so this is sort of a preparation for them as well. That they need something to help them understand and be able to be open to the possibility of the idea that he reigns even over death and that he is going to raise again to new life. And a lot of us need 
preparation for these kinds of concepts. Um, you know, kids, before they can read, they need to learn the alphabet. Uh, before you can study advanced biomechanics, you need to understand basic biomechanics, or basic biology, basic physics. Um, for us, this is an example. These are um, two MRIs of a brain. Uh, on the left is uh, David's, and on the right is one of a normal brain. Um, and the white is, like all this white stuff is fluid. And in this one, this is brain matter. This is probably more obvious to all of you that it, this brain matter because we're used to seeing wrinkly brains, right? But when I first saw this image, I didn't know what to do with it. I had to go look up this image in order to understand this one. So this prepared me to make sense of what was happening here. This more basic concept helped me understand a little bit the more complex concept of what's, what's wrong with my son. And so Jesus prepares his friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, his disciples, for the concept of him raising from the grave by first raising someone else from death. Because you see, it's, it's easy, maybe, to say that Jesus has power to perform a miracle in someone else's life. So you start with that. He can heal people. Okay, we get it. Okay, he could have healed Lazarus. He wouldn't have died. Then you go from there to, okay, now he can even bring Lazarus back from the death, from dead. Oh, okay. Wow, he's pretty powerful then. But if you go without that basis, straight to this man died and now he's going to come back to life, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So you use the, the basis of Jesus performing all these different miracles, and eventually that leads up to he has power over death. So when he dies, that's not the end of the story because he is capable of coming back from the grave. And it prepares them for that reality. It helps them to better understand what that means when it does happen. That it means that he really is the Son of God. That he really has conquered sin and death and the grave. That he has overcome these things because of who he is. And that is all built up and, and pointed in that direction as he goes back to Jerusalem in the following chapters. John introduces this passage. This is, this is one of the funniest things to me about this passage. John introduces Mary and Martha in this passage by saying that Mary is the same Mary that anointed Jesus. He doesn't get to that story for another couple chapters because she hasn't done it yet. She does it later. She anoints him in one of his last meals with them before he goes and to his death. She anoints him for his death and burial. John weaves all this together because he knows that this is an, a key part of their story as they came to understand better who Jesus is and his power over sin and death. It's amazing. It's just incredible. 
in Jesus, our hope is that of an eternal resurrection. Not just, you know, Lazarus, he, he does get raised, but he dies again. He's not still walking around today. But, but we have this hope, not of a resurrection like Lazarus's that leads to more death. We have a hope of an eternal resurrection, to eternal life in God's presence, in Jesus' presence, without sin, without illness, without interruptions or distractions, so that we can enjoy his presence forever. This miracle is not about Lazarus' health or comfort for him and his family. It's about declaring the glory of God to them and many other people who were there, who saw it. This miracle is about helping them to better understand who Jesus is, Part of the goal is to prepare them so that they can receive Jesus' own resurrection. And by seeing his power over the grave in Lazarus' situation, they can understand it. We have to remember that Jesus' primary goal is not to make this life more comfortable for us. This is not where our hope is. It's, our goal is to be prepared for eternal life with him. When we ask for a miracle, we need to ask with a focus on his glory, on how God can be revealed better to us and to the people around us. How the faith of many, including ourselves, can be strengthened in this situation. With this eternal perspective, we'll still ask for amazing miracles. We still ask that David will be healed, that he won't have any long-term side effects from this. I mean, you look at that, there's not much brain on that image. But we have hope. We've heard stories about others who God has healed in this way. But we don't know. We don't know. We pray that out of desire for our own comfort, right? We want him to be able to be a normal kid so that we don't have to do things for him constantly for the rest of his life. And also because we, we love our son. We want what's best for him. But we also pray with an eternal perspective, realizing that God might use disabilities in David's life to reveal himself better to other people, to us. It is stretching our faith more than we ever thought possible to raise David, to go through this situation, to to leave our home and our ministry that he called us to. And we have hope. That hope doesn't make it easy. It's still hard to walk through the difficult times. But we walk through it with our eyes fixed on him, knowing that he knows what's best, not only for us, but for those around us, for for those who we'll get to share David's story with. And so we don't know what the future holds. But (laughs) we have a, a teammate in Indonesia who says, all the time, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. When we pray for miracles, we pray not only out of a desire for convenience for ourselves, we pray out of a desire to see God glorified. And so we pray with that focus. Lord, do what is best for your glory. Help us to grow in our faith in you. Help others around us to know who you are better through this situation. And if that If what will most glorify God is that David will be completely healed, please, Lord, do that. But if what is best is that we have to go through a long, difficult process with 
multiple operations. We've already had four. Maybe there's more. Maybe this is the last one. We don't know. But we pray that God will be glorified through it. That whatever that means for our life and our family, that we will be able to trust him. That he'll give us the strength to endure. To glorify him in the midst of it. We too often limit God's work because we ask with a worldly perspective. But we must continue to steadfastly believe that he will always do what is best for us and his glory from an eternal perspective in all situations. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your power. And we pray that you would help us to trust you more and more every day, that we would in any situation, instead of asking in an accusatory tone, why? Why would you let this happen? That we would ask in a seeking sense, what is it that you want to do in this situation? How are you going to be glorified through this? How can we be a part of showing others who you are in the midst of this situation? Lord, we pray that you would continue to strengthen and stretch the faith of every person in this room that we would all come to be able to trust you with more and more aspects of our lives every day. And that with that, that we would give you glory, that you, we would glorify your name to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family members, as we endure difficult situations, as we endure easy situations, that we would be able to praise you for the ways that you have provided for us. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.